Before we start, go to sashimi.cloud, sign up and receive transcripts of interviews, announcements of future guests and other relevant news. And now we start. Welcome to Season A of Sashimi. For this episode, I interviewed Patrick Campbell, founder and CEO of ProfitWell. Patrick is well known in the SaaS community for his expertise in pricing strategies and revenue retention, which are just two of many specialties of ProfitWell. In this interview, Patrick answered many pricing questions, such as how should companies think about software pricing, how do you increase the pricing for existing clients, what to consider when pricing an on-prem software that is moving to cloud, and lastly, how should companies show the pricing on their websites. Enjoy. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, loving it. Let's uh, let's jam on all things and see if we can uh, we can get some knowledge dropped here. Yeah, obviously we're going to be talking about SaaS pricing here. But before we start, can you please say a few words about yourself and ProfitWell? Where do you start, right? Uh, so I personally, I am uh, in econometrics and math. I, I grew up in Wisconsin, which is uh, central US in the Midwest there on farmland. And then basically after college, went and worked in the US intelligence community, then in in uh, at Google in Boston, and then started ProfitWell um, about eight, nine years ago. And we focus on helping subscription companies automate their revenue. So we have a number of different products. Our core product is a a free subscription financial metrics product. So you plug it into your billing system, you get all of your financial reporting for free and really, really accurate form. And then the way we make money is we have a couple of products that'll automate your your retention or automate your price optimization. And uh, yeah, we try to set it up so when our customers make money, we make money and you know we don't charge unless that does that. I believe you originally started as a price optimizing uh, service and then you added additional, right? I think it's a... Uh retention analysis and all this stuff. Yeah, we started off mainly focused on... um, So we started off purely as a pricing company, and then we quickly ended up moving into more subscription revenue in general, rather than just pricing, just based on the data that we found. In some of your presentations and workshops, you mentioned how important the price optimization as a growth lever for the company. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? The thing with pricing is like, you have three areas of growth, particularly in a subscription business, but in any business, you have acquiring new customers, pricing or, or you know the revenue you get from those customers, and then how long those customers stick around or how often they purchase from you. In that respect, you're looking at a world where you have these three areas of growth. Now, if you look at the data, if we improve each of those by the same relative amount, the highest leverage growth area is typically pricing. So what I mean by that is if you improve your acquisition, your leads by 1%, you're typically going to see about a 2 to 3% boost in your revenue. If you improve your revenue per customer, your pricing, you're typically going to see an increase in revenue of about, I mean, it could be anywhere from like 9 to 15%. Um, and if you improve your, your retention by about 1%, you're typically going to see a boost in revenue anywhere between like 6 and 10%. So the idea is, is those, those gains in you know, basically improving monetization and retention, it's harder than spinning up a new ad campaign, spinning up some sort of new acquisition channel. But the gains you get from them are so much more high impact and people are basically doing nothing. So this is why we, you know, we focused on those areas. How should companies think of pricing their product? There's a lot of ways to answer that. I think that the biggest thing that you should think about is like, it all stems from your customers, right? So whoever you're going after when it comes to your customer base, like you're looking for very similar to product market fit. You're looking for pricing customer fits. And what I mean by that is um, 
your customer is ultimately the one who's purchasing and you need to understand your customer and understand the value that they're getting from you. And I know a lot of people like, this is a very fluffy thing to say, right? And a lot of people talk about value-based pricing, right? And this is how you should be pricing is you should be studying your customer and your segment, obviously, of your customer base. And then based on that, doing your pricing. But most of the time what people do is one, they just make stuff up. They just pull numbers out of the air and like that ends up being your pricing. Or they look at their costs or their competitors. And the problem is, is your customer doesn't care about your costs. Like they care about their costs, right? And your competitors, you're assuming you're selling the exact same type of product to the exact same type of customer, which is a really bad assumption. You're also assuming that your cust- your competitors have done their homework. And I guarantee you, your competitors have not done their pricing homework. Like no one does, right? So you're just getting bad data. And so the data you want is to go talk to your customers, collect data from your customers around willingness to pay, around relative preference for features, these types of things, and then make your decision. That's that's ultimately what you want to be going after. And it's not easy, but it's not hard. It's not hard in the sense that it does take effort and that's why it's not easy. But it is one of those things that like you can figure out price points, you can figure out packaging, you can figure out some of these sorts of things like within weeks if you just like do your homework rather than just like struggling, which is oftentimes what we're going to do anyways. But there's a bunch of tools out there to, to kind of help you through it, if that makes sense. So is there like a proper way to survey clients on the price they willing to pay, how open they are about the true quantifiable value of what they're actually willing to pay? Yeah. So the price point is actually not the most important thing to figure out. A lot of people fixate on it because obviously you're like, well, what should I charge for this thing? But in actuality, the, the number one thing for people to figure out, and, and even if they're later stage, is how you charge. So your value metric, right? So am I going to charge per user? Am I going to charge per what's it? Thousand what's it's? Like, what is it going to look like, right? And what I typically find is when you're looking at companies, like they don't spend any time on this because they're just like, oh, let's just do it this way. But this is actually the more powerful lever. And the reason is because your value metric, if you get it right, it bakes growth into how you make money. Meaning as people use more of the metric or get more value from whatever your product is along that metric, what ends up happening is, is they all of a sudden you know, start paying you more. So expansion revenue goes up. There's less churn because they might stop using your product as much, but they're not necessarily going to cancel it. Um, so churn is typically much, much lower. And so that's where I would spend most of my time in the early days and or even in late days. And when when I do that, the best way to do this is basically think about what is the quintessential value of your product? And don't worry about measuring it, but for a retained product, it's how much money we recover for you. For a dating app, it might be finding love. You know, for um, <laughs> you know, some sort of consumer product, it might be joy, right? Don't worry about measuring it first, but like what is the perfect value? Now if you can measure it, and most importantly, if your customer agrees to the measurement, then what I would do is that's how you should charge. And this is known as like a pure pricing metric. And we're able to do this with Retain, but most companies can't do this. It's about 10% of companies out there. Um, if you can't measure it, like most of us, or you can't measure it and your customer won't agree to it, then you find proxies. So if you take like HubSpot, for example, their perfect metric for their marketing product is the amount of money you make through their marketing suite. Problem is, is they could measure that, but they wouldn't get me to agree to the measurement because I wrote the blog post. And if I wrote the blog post, how much did HubSpot you know, do to get that mm-hmm. money? How much did I do to get that money? It's hard to like figure that out. So they find proxy. For them, it could be number of contacts that you got in your account, number of visits, number of landing pages, number of posts, a whole host of things. But you find like five to 10 proxies. And then normally what I would do is I would go talk qualitatively to like 10 to 15 potential customers or current customers. I'd say, hey, we're trying to figure out 
how we should charge for our product. You know, here's like five different ways we thought about what do you prefer? What's your most preferable metric? What's your least preferable metric, right? And then after I get those five to 10 people um, or those 10 to 15 people to answer that question, I would then do a survey using a survey tool, Qualtrics, whatever it is to a few hundred people. Um, and I would do a max diff question, which is exactly what I just said, meaning here's five options. What's the most important? What's the least important? And then I would basically be able to get not only rank order of that group, but I would also get magnitude. So I might find out like, not only does everyone care about context, it's like three, four times as much as the next option, right? Or everyone is kind of indifferent in the aggregate. So we're going to have a problem. We're going to have to make a decision. And then I would make a decision and earn my paycheck um, and pick whatever you know option we're going to go with. But that method of think about it, do a little bit qualitative conversations, do more quantitative, higher volume conversations through a survey, that's basically the model to doing pricing research. And I would argue customer development in general. Now, the questions you ask and the model you use will be very different, but it's for depending on the thing you're trying to figure out, but that's how you kind of like walk through this problem. And to like really quickly answer your actual question on pricing, I realize I'm on a little bit of a monologue here. The way you figure out the actual price point, there's a lot of methods you can use. I recommend using something called Van Westendorp, which is this Dutch economist. Basically, you ask questions in ranges because the human brain, we, we think about value in a spectrum. We know that this microphone is worth more than the cup of water I have next to me because we've purchased these things in the past. We get different utility from them. It's really hard for us to answer a question like, how much would you pay for this microphone? Really hard. It's a really hard question for a human to answer. And so we can ask questions like, at what point is this microphone way too expensive? At what price point is this microphone getting expensive, but you'd still consider purchasing it? At what price point is it a good deal? And what price point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it? Now, if I'm talking to you on the phone, I'm probably only going to ask two of those. At what point is it a good deal? And what point is it way too expensive? You're not going to like want to talk to me about it. In a survey, I'd ask all four. Now, the calculations, you can do the generic calculations and you'll probably get plus or minus 20, 25% of reality. You can also do more complicated calculations and get close to plus or minus 10% of reality. Um, in our, our software, we've gotten to about plus or minus 3%. Again, you're not trying to find the picture perfect answer. You're trying to like mitigate risk and data is never going to be perfect, but you're trying to reduce as much of the risk as possible. And so again, going through that process of talking to humans, then doing a longer survey, looking through the data, cleaning the data and making a decision after that. So when you come up with a pricing strategy, do you use some sort of A-B testing to see if it actually works? Um, I'm not a fan of A-B testing with pricing. So, so in a perfect world, it'd be more multivariate testing than A-B testing that would work because you have to think about like a standard pricing page. It's not just the price. It's like the price points of each tier. It's the, you know, what is the metric? What are the features or packaging? How is that? Like, so there's a lot more variables than just A or B, right? But let's say like you were able to whittle it down to just A or B in a perfect world. Like, yeah, that's the right way to do it. The problem is, is that very few of us have the traffic, right? Because it's not just the traffic of visits, it's the traffic of completes, right? And then it's the traffic of completes through retention because someone who paid a little bit less, they might retain at a lower rate, right? So it's not as good as lifetime value. So it's really towards lifetime value. So it can get a little complicated and we probably don't have the traffic. But the other thing is, is like, if you really think about our sales cycles, even if we had the traffic, our sales cycles might screw this up because if our sales cycles are six to eight weeks, if you're a fast-growing company, you're changing a lot within six to eight weeks, right? So 
if you're a more consumery product or a very like wide scale B2B, you might be able to get away with an AB test. Most of us, what we need to do is do our research, as I kind of described, make decisions and then track performance over time as you make those decisions. So more of an AB test versus time rather than an AB test versus like a volume of users over time. But if you have the right testing environment, it works. I just, I also think there's a PR aspect. Most of us aren't like, again, we don't have the right testing environment. So, you know, Judy on the West coast sees a different price than Eli on the East coast turns into a situation sometimes. And so I think it's like in a perfect world, yes, but none of us live in a perfect world or very few of us live in a perfect world. So you just have to be careful with it. When it comes to pricing and finding that, like quantifying actually the figures, how important it is to look at the different markets? I think you call it localization. Yeah, it's a good question. I think for the most part, you typically, like if you have 20% or more of your customers coming from a different location, that's when you should start to think about things like localization. And, and localization basically means to define it, you set up your prices so that they're different in each different region. Because not only are currency symbols different and we're more comfortable purchasing in our own currency symbol, but also like willingness to pay is very different depending on the density of, of a particular market. And so the big thing you have to think about though is like when you look at things like localization or your discounting strategy or your add-on strategy, a lot of these things are very secondary to the core aspects, the core four, if you will, the packaging, the positioning, the value metric, and the price. Those are the biggest things. If you have those like not optimized, or let's just say wrong, because they could be like somewhat right and still be fine. But if you have those very much wrong and you do localization and do these other things, you'll get a little bit of win here or there, but like it's not going to necessarily like really help you as much. But localization does have a big impact. It can increase revenue per user by about 30% if used properly. Um, and in addition to that, it's just one of those things that's also a really quick win. So normally if I if I meet a larger company that just is very bad at their pricing strategy right now, like they just don't do anything with it. I normally suggest things like localization as a starter project because you don't have to change a lot. You're just trying to figure out price points. You got to get your billing system in order. So your infrastructure is in place. Um, and also you, you'll have like interesting arguments to figure out who's going to be more sensitive with other pricing changes. And it's a little bit easier of a project to do really quickly rather than taking on like value metrics, which, you know, might be like changing the very nature of your product, if that makes sense. When company realizes that its strategy was wrong and somehow they, maybe they hired you, they realize what's the right way. How do they transition existing clients to the new pricing? So what's interesting is transitioning their existing clients is easier than transitioning their mindsets internally. Because here's the funny thing is your customers, we all like we treat pricing and price kind of like religion and politics, right? Like, oh my gosh, don't talk about it with people you don't know, right? And it's like, no, your customers know things cost money. It's not a thing that is a secret, right? It's not something that's like, OMG, like, oh, we're we're so offended that you said the price costs X, right? And so what is interesting is like the internal kind of mindset and politics of pricing are fascinating. Even if you have a phenomenal, transparent, good communication culture, pricing is at the intersection of uncomfortable and important. And whenever you have something at that intersection, holy cow, people like get so sensitive, insecure, vulnerable, all these different things. And so normally that's why I suggest starting with something small. Like don't try to, and everyone's like, I want to change all my pricing. It's like, no, no, no. There's a lot of different aspects of pricing. You got to start with one, then like move on to the next. You got to get some confidence in making these changes. And then eventually you get to a point where you're making changes every quarter and you know it's just kind of part of the business. 
Now, in terms of your actual customers, in practice, it's it's relatively easy if you communicate properly. And what I mean by that is if your support's terrible, you have not shipped a new feature in years and you want to change your price, eh, it's probably going to be a tough hill to climb, right? But if your support's okay, you're shipping features regularly, you're adding a lot of value, then going to your customer and being like, hey, you know, we've offered a bunch of, and this is the first thing, always remind them of how much value you've provided. So, hey, we've over the past year, you've gotten 600 thousand contacts through this product. We've recovered this much money for you. You've spent 105 hours on our platform, whatever it is, right? Some sort of number and make it real to them. We've shipped this feature for you. You asked about this thing and we took care of it. Like remind them of the value. And I'm kind of giving you the outline of an email to send. Then to say like, hey, in order for us to invest in making profit well better for you, like put it in the context of them, we got to raise prices. Oh, they're raising prices, but it's for me. It's not just because they're greedy, right? And it really is because you want to, you know, hire more engineers, you want to like hire more support people, whatever it is, you need money for that. And that's going to be a little bit of a shock. And so what you then do to kind of deflate some of that information is you go, but because you've been so loyal, and this is there's better words, I'm kind of paraphrasing. We're going to raise prices on everyone else. Everyone knew they're getting the new price, but because you've been around for four and a half years, three years, two years, whatever it is, we're going to give you the next six months at the existing price as a reward, right? So all of a sudden there's some reciprocity, like, oh, we're raising your price, but not right away. And and we're giving you a reward. Um, And then basically, hey, if you have any questions, let us know. And then the the biggest thing is I always like to do a PS, like PS, if this materially impacts your life or your business, depending on your audience, let us know and we'll work something out. And that's for two types of people. It's for one, people that actually are hurting, you know, and they're like, normally people negotiate with you. Oh, I'm sorry. Like ah, we're going through dire straits. I'm getting funding now. This, And it gives you a great opportunity to be like, don't worry about it. Just contact us later. Right. Like, you know, it's a good brand build or they'll negotiate with you and you'll, you know, meet in the middle or something like that. It's also for people like me. I run a business. I know things cost money, but sometimes I don't, I, I don't want to pay more for things. But if I see that PS after you've reinforced the value, after you've told me everything about the product, I'm going to go, eh, okay, like I don't want to cause a stink. I don't want to be a problem customer. I do get value from this product, et cetera. So that's kind of the structure. And, and then the last thing I'll say is like, this is a reason to make sure you're pricing properly. Anyone who ends up getting a greater than 50% price increase and use your best judgment, going from one to $2 is very different than you know 500 to 750 or a thousand or something like that probably should treat those folks a little bit differently. Probably going to give them a call, do things like that. But I think a really big thing is, is like the argument then isn't, oh, let's call everyone every three years. It's like, no, make sure you're raising your prices at least once a year. Your actual physical price point should be raised once a year, if that makes sense. How would you suggest to raise them based off some sort of metrics? Going back to doing your research, right? So I would figure out like, what's the willingness to pay? And then you might find out that you're underpriced by a factor of five. I've seen that happen a lot. Um, and then people go, oh, the data is wrong. It's like, no, the data is not wrong. When you set your price five years ago and just pulled something out of your butt, that was wrong, right? And now all your customers are anchored, right? Your existing customers. And so in that case, you're probably going to have to either rip the Band-Aid off, as they say, and just raise your prices. That's probably not a good idea unless you absolutely have to. Or you're going to have to raise prices on those customers over three years meaning like each incrementally yeah. up. Now, that being said, your new customers should get the new price instantly. So it's just one of those things to think about. Have you dealt with um, software companies that used to be on-prem, but now trying to transition to SaaS on cloud or just subscription in general? 
Have you dealt with those companies and is the approach different for them? Yeah, I think the thing with on-prem is you have some other internal factors around finance and things like that. So what I mean is, is like all of a sudden you're running into a world where your cost structure is going to change. Your costs are going to go up. Your revenue is going to go down because you're presumably not getting all of that revenue up front. And then all of a sudden your revenue is going to start compounding back up and your costs will come down as, as things get shipped and change. So Normally, there's like internal factors you have to think about, and and normally, like if you're large enough and you're a large enough on-premise company, this is like a very like, it's in your quarterly, you know, public statements. It's in you know, it's an initiative that everyone's aware of if you have investors and things like that. But that's the biggest consideration. The other consideration from a customer standpoint is it depends on how intense, I guess, is the nice way to put it. Your customer base is, and what I mean by that is like if like CAD and CNC people. Um, Autodesk, like they did not want to go to a subscription or a cloud offering. They wanted to keep their on-premise software. But Adobe, when they switched to cloud, it was a little bit less than that. There was some of that. And then Microsoft, not a lot of people cared, right? Like they were like, "Eh, all right, whatever. I buy this every year anyways. I might as well buy it monthly, right? And when I say nobody cared, obviously some people cared, but it wasn't as big of a deal as Autodesk or Adobe, right? And so in this case, like if not a lot of people are going to care or there's there's no alternative, doing a massive just rip the bandaid off like Microsoft did and be like, cool, the next version's cloud. There's no other version you could buy except cloud. And then just over time, people get back on it. Other folks like Adobe, they ripped the bandaid off and maybe they shouldn't have. That was something where like maybe they should have done a little bit more like side by side. And then Autodesk, they basically offered them side by side for a long time. And then slowly over time, they start raising the perpetual license on-premise option. And all of a sudden, the cloud or the subscription option looks a lot cheaper. So you obviously work with so many companies. At least your last presentation says that uh, you had experience with at least 20,000 SaaS companies. Of all these companies, who would you use as an example of the best pricing strategy? So to be super clear, we haven't worked with 20,000 people on the pricing side, but there's 20,000 plus people on ProfitWell, so we're able to study a lot of the data. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'm old enough to have worked with 20,000 people yet. But um, I think <laughs> yeah. uh, to answer your question, it's tough because it's also like who's good for their like industry, right? There's two companies I think are really worth talking about. One is Slack. The reason they do a really, really good job is because they get you in the door through a free plan that is very generous. It's not like a faux free trial where it's like very limited. It's like you get everything. And as soon as you reach this like kind of annoying thing, then you convert. And the annoying thing is like 10,000 messages. But by the time you reach it, it's a no-brainer to purchase the products, right? And from there, you're not paying them 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. You're instantly paying them three-figure MRR, 100 bucks or more, typically 200 bucks or more. It's almost like they get better marketing by just not chasing $10 here, 50 bucks there. They're chasing like, you know, starting to be real money and then obviously expands over time. So they do really well with that. And the other thing they do is if you look at their tiers, their tiers are not meant to like push you up. They're meant to pull you up. And what I mean by that is, we're on the baseline paid tier of Slack, right? Because we wanted the store history. We wanted more integrations, these types of things. There is no reason for us to go to the next level until we have like a very formal COO and a chief legal officer who wants these other features. And what I mean by that is like, it's very obvious what size companies will need which tier. So if I go to that website, I know exactly that I need all this fun legal stuff. So I need to be in this tier at a minimum, Right. 
Whereas like a Salesforce, they are like, well, if you want that feature, really, you really need this plan, but that feature is two plans up and you got to go to the next feed. Like you can't buy it all. It's like all over the place. It forces you into using only 20% of a particular tier, right? And it's very old school. Salesforce is able to do it just because it's Salesforce still. But over time, I think as HubSpot and some of the other CRMs creep up, they're, they're not going to be able to do that. The other company I think does really, really well is, uh, is Square. What they've done is basically they have a very commoditized core product in the the payments. Mm-hmm. And then they have, I think it's it's more probably now, but they have 14 different products they can sell you in addition to the commodity. And you might be thinking, oh, it's way too much. Well, you as an individual customer never see all 14. They learn about you. They understand what you are. If you're a food truck or you're a coffee shop or you're just selling stuff out of a retail store. They learn about you and then they sell you the right things. Oh, you have a team? Oh, here's you know payroll. Oh, you have you know a physical location? Here's a POS system, right? They're very, very smart with how they do it, if that makes sense. That is one question I meant to ask when you talked about the pricing page. Obviously, it's uh, probably the last thing the companies need to think about when it comes to pricing strategies. But are there like uh, common mistakes the companies make when they work on their pricing pages? Yeah. I mean, the basic idea is like, we're talking about the physical design of a page right now. I I think the basic idea is that it should be really easy to understand what plan that I should go to when it comes to first 10 seconds on a particular page. Oftentimes what happens is people make the design of the page very convoluted. They make it all over the place, these types of things. And it just gets really, really tough to like figure that out. Now, in addition to that, I think a lot of people end up kind of pushing for the wrong types of things when it comes to their value prop. Like they don't even understand their positioning or what their value prop should be. So it becomes just another really convoluted page. And I think the last thing is like thinking that if you optimize your pricing page, your physical page, somehow it's going to solve your pricing strategy problems. And that's not the case. You can have the most beautiful pricing page in the world that's really well organized. And if you don't have like the basics taken care of around your value metric and some of the other things, then you're not going to see results. Yeah, that's a perfect conclusion. Uh, Patrick, thanks very much for the interview.